Welcome to the Dairy Farmer's Digest, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Dairy Farmer's Digest. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. I'm super uh, excited to have Dr. Uh, Luis Ferreretto on this morning from the University of Wisconsin. I know uh, Luis and I were just talking. We had met when uh, he was down at the University of Florida. University of Florida, yes. Go Gators. <laughs> so, Luis, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, I know you... Uh, uh, you started your undergrad at Brazil, but I'll let you kind of talk through uh, kind of your path to getting into the University of Wisconsin. Yeah, of course. Uh, first, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, I'm originally from Brazil. Uh, so I had my undergrad in animal science at Sao Paulo State University. And then as soon as I graduated, I decided I want to have an experience living, you know, uh, outside of Brazil and hopefully studying to learn a little bit more about their nutrition. Um, my goal was actually always to go to grad school. So I moved to Wisconsin for an internship in 2009 and then stayed for a master's and PhD. Um, at that point, I decided that actually what I wanted to do was research instead of working in the industry, which completely changed from what I initially wanted to do uh, during the time I was an undergrad. Then I moved to the Minor Institute in upstate New York for a short postdoc. And then in 2016, moved to the University of Florida as a faculty. Uh, that's when we met. Um, I actually left University of Florida, I think it was April of 2020, and then joined University of Wisconsin in May of 2020. Uh, between University of Florida and University of Wisconsin, my research program is focused on forage quality uh, and digestibility. Uh, dairy cattle utilization of carbohydrates, especially starch, and then the use of uh, feed additives, alternative forages, and evaluation and development of assays for feed and forage analysis. Yeah, and that's where uh, I think we get real excited about some of these alternative forage crops that are being used now. Now, I know your work is, you'd be about, what, like a 60-40 split on research versus um, extension? Uh, actually, it's the opposite. My, my work okay. is primarily extension. Yeah, I think yep. most extension specialists now are are more extension than research. So, Yeah, and then so you'd be working with producers in the upper Midwest or mostly just in Wisconsin? Uh, primarily Wisconsin. We collaborate with other uh, extension teams in the area, but well, Wisconsin is the main focus. Well, there's a, few, uh, there's a few cattle in Wisconsin from what I hear. Oh, that's for sure. <laughs> There are about 6,500 <laughs> farms, so there are a lot of cows around, which is uh, living the dream for a researcher, right? Because everything <laughs> you do pretty much has a lot of potential, so. No, that's good. How's the, like, what's the landscape for dairy in Wisconsin right now? I know the U.S. has kind of seen the milk price backed off a little bit, and uh, I just didn't know if that kind of affected Wisconsin, because I know they're more of a net importer of milk, even though they have so many cows that are yeah, the price fluctuates similar to the U.S. market, right? I'm not very up to date with all the pricing uh, and the specifics, but uh, I, I I think it follows the those different trends. So we were uh, just talking here before we get 
uh, got started and I know you do a lot on forage quality. So let's kind of jump off there. And I was just thinking Wisconsin, I guess their timeline isn't much different than we are here in Southwestern Ontario. Like I know you can pretty much just take a, a ruler and draw a line pretty much across to the, to the area of the, of Canada that we're in. It's been a really nice week this past week. I know it's cooled off a little bit here this morning, but, uh, our alternative forages, our rye and our triticales are really starting to to look good. So what are some things that we should start thinking about for the growing season and then, you know, to get the highest quality forage that we can into the bunks? Well, I think for every single crop we work with, there is always that trade-off between yield and quality, right? And we have to always focus on that. Um, not sure how it works exactly for you, but for us here, uh, usually we have to be very careful in delaying uh, harvest of uh, cover crops because if we delay corn planting, then later mm -hmm. it becomes a potential issue because of the weather at harvest, especially, right? So, so because of that, I always tend to be more careful uh, on the yield side with cover crops than I would be with other crops like corn, for example, for corn silage, right? So basically my suggestion is make sure you're timing it right, not only focusing on the yield and quality of the cover crop, but also timing your next crop that you have to be planting, right? So from a quality versus yield perspective, I think the trade-off here is the more you wait, more you produce per area, but you also accumulate uh, more lignin, right? And this is regardless mm -hmm. of which crop we are talking about. This is true for corn, alfalfa, triticale, uh, rye, anything, right? So the more lignin you have, that's where some of the issues you may have for digestibility, because that's the indigestible portion of MDF, right? Uh, alternatively, you could measure undigested MDF as a good assay to compare, right? And the more you wait, basically less digestible, the less digestible it is, longer it stays in the rumen of the cow, less the cow will be able to consume, right? Or alternatively, harder it is to establish high forage diets. Yeah, I know a lot of the work seems to be coming out and I think we're getting better at predicting the undigestible portion which kind of seems to be the one that's predicting on how much intake we can actually how much dry matter intake we can get into some of these cows yep yeah absolutely the UNDF assay you know has a reasonable relationship with intake and production you know the minor institute has a lot of data on that and uh we try to mimic some of that research here you know and we see very similar response in terms of quality we didn't have the intake associated with that, uh, but I'm convinced those relationships are actually fairly accurate. So absolutely, the more undigested NDF you have, harder it is for the cows to consume. So, is there anything that you can do, like say, you know, you run into a bad stretch of weather, and you know this crop is we're trying to get it off, and then you know it's the springtime in the upper Midwest. Typically, there's rain. So like, yeah. say we get pushed back a little bit, like, is there anything that we can do on the the forage, like chopping or things like that to kind of mitigate some of those effects? For cover crops, it's, it's kind of hard, right? Because the, the, the only approach that is very effective for crops would be increasing shop height, right? Which we actually suggest sometimes for crops like corn, sorghum. But for cover crops, if you do that, basically the yield you're going to have per area is so limited that... Uh, you have to be really careful uh, trying to apply this approach, right? Uh, another option, and this will depend heavily on which forages you have available to formulate the diet later on, 
but you could chop that very fine, right? Yep. And then by having a very fine material, uh, first would be harder for the cows to sort at the feed bunk, but also uh, you reduce the particle enough that there is more surface area for bacterial attachment and then the cow can digest it better. I know physiologically with the plant, like it seems like if some of these alternative forages you let go a little bit longer, they get kind of the stem gets hollow almost, and it's yep. just tougher to tougher to pack. And I think producers chopping a little bit shorter, like like when we talk shorter, we're like, what are we talking? Like twelve mils or like three eighths of an inch, like that kind of. Yeah, my approach usually it is you know pick your common harvesting size you know, and reduce that a little bit and see how that goes, right? I never suggest a drastic change because, you know, if you're used to do a specific crop under specific conditions, you know, you, you don't want to change heavily your diet or the crop because of that. But I highly agree with you on the issues associated with the silage because the longer those particles are, you know, the coarser those particles are, harder it is to pack and packing is such an important concept, right? Mm -hmm. For silage fermentation and so on. And we actually see a lot of issues associated with that, even for those that use egg bags, right? So if you don't oh, pay really? attention. Yeah, because if you don't pay attention to particles, right? You end up with extra air, even though the egg bags do a pretty good job with that, right? Uh, helping with that. Uh, because you just leave extra air there and it doesn't ferment as well as you would like, right? The fermentation is not necessarily bad, but it could be much better. So is it just because like like the porosity, like it's too yeah. porous? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for the farmers, if you're not familiar with the term porosity, basically, you know, just think about a jar full of, you know, a golf balls, you know, uh, very often the jar will look full and you cannot put anything inside. But if you put water, for example, you'll see that there are a yeah. lot of places that are you, you can fill, right? So it's basically some of those gaps. And, and actually, that's exactly what it is. It's not as bad as it would be in a bunker, obviously, right? Because you, you truly need that strong uh, density for a bunker. But uh, there, there's still some issues associated with that. Yeah, and I know some producers have... Like it's just a pain in the butt to pack some of these long stem alternative forage grasses, like oh, your tree kills in your eyes. Like you hear, uh, you hear lots of complaints over the pack tractor. That's for sure when they're doing this stuff. Yeah, no, I feel I, I feel what you're saying because you know it makes a lot of sense to to find shopper just to avoid those issues because you're gonna save so much time as well that it is worth. So with these triticales and rise, like if <clears throat> if we're trying to make cow quality feed and i think that should be the goal when you're when you set out to do this stuff um what what stage should we be looking at cutting some of these because I, I i know it, it's nice to look at the calendar date if you want to try and get corn or something in after that but i mean stage of maturity i think we have to try and balance the amount of yield versus the quality like is flag leaf too far on some of these things or should we moving it up a little bit like down into the boot stage of the grass or what are your thoughts well I, i'm really biased by corn so i always pay attention to planting yep. corn first okay but i do understand your question and uh I, I i think i think that you know if you reach that stage you will be kind of a little bit late i like going towards you know a a, a much shorter growing period so mm -hmm. I will be really careful with maturity, you know. Uh, so based on the two options you gave me, I will go with the second for sure. You know, uh, just 
to make sure that you have a more digestible forage, yes, you are definitely sacrificing yield. I don't know exactly the numbers. I haven't been uh, running a lot of uh, field trials on yield for any of the cover crops. Most of what we are doing are more focused on uh, nutritive value and surveys uh, on mm -hmm. how people are using those. Uh, and, and actually, if you think about it, it makes sense to harvest a little bit earlier, right? Because if your goal is to work with high-producing cows, um, you, you need to make sure this is a very digestible forage, right? Because otherwise, uh, you're going to impair intake. And yes, this may be good for a uh, late lactation cow, but then it depends on a dairy having actually uh, the capacity of feeding different nutritional groups, right? Which is mm -hmm. actually always not the case and requires a lot of extra work depending depending on how to implement that as well. Even though I'm a big fan of nutritional group, I understand that this creates some challenge, plus having extra silos for different groups make it yeah. make it even worse, right? So effective, I think harvesting earlier may be of benefit uh, just because you can ensure that you can feed all your cows a much better material. And it's also easier to replace some of the other crops that may be more digestible, right? So you can increase some of the percentage in the diet. And I think it fits uh, uh, with what we are seeing in the field here. Yeah, and like, I know we talk a lot about NDF 30 now. Like, what are some of the numbers you're seeing coming off of these alternative forage crops? Because I've seen just in my own stuff, like you're you're talking high 60s, low 70 percentage. Like, it, it almost looks like a BMR style forage, like NDF digestibility. Yeah, we are seeing very similar numbers to that. You know, I think there's a lot of variation though. Um, a colleague of mine uh, put together a survey um, a couple months ago and was discussing exactly that. How do we copy with some of the very high values of NDF that we see for some of those cover crops, right? And basically we saw some variation, you know, that the reach is close to, you know, sometimes 49, 50, and goes up to 70-something, you know, wow. like 75. <laughs> That's a big variation. It, it's crazy, right? Well, and, and then you go back to the discussion, well, but why does that happen, right? Well, everybody has a completely different approach to which crops they are working with. So, you know, probably the crop immediately before plays a major role there. Uh, people also have a very different approach to uh, their agronomic practice, how they correct for soil, uh, fertility mm -hmm. and so on, you know, so that plays a major role as well. And then obviously there is all sorts of dry matter, right? So obviously they are harvesting at very different stages, uh, probably because of a combination of weather, other tests that they have at the dairy, as well as uh, maybe trying to play with the, the window for whatever other crop they are planting next, right? So I think that's part of the issue associated with some of those cover crops. We have so much variation uh, and I don't know if this is because uh, all those factors that we just mentioned, or there is a lack of knowledge about those uh, forages as well, maybe a combination of that, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty wild, you can say, <laughs> you know, when you look at those, right? Because it makes a huge difference, right? Formulating the diet yeah. with the two extremes here are obviously, yeah. uh, you, you can't do the same thing at all, so. Well, the neat thing is, it's like, the amount of digestibility like if you nail this stuff correctly like it makes tremendous cow feed because it doesn't always it's not always about the ndf digestibility but i've seen some crazy high sugar numbers on this yeah. and like i think that's like the 
that's like the Cadillac. Like we're getting, we're bringing in a ton of sugar into these diets and it's all really, the cows are just performing tremendously on it. Yeah, no, I agree. This is a great benefit from a silage fermentation perspective is also outstanding, right? Because bacteria need mm -hmm. that to ferment the silage well. Uh, so I, I, I do really like those cover crops as an add-on to whatever forage you use as your main forage source already because they add a lot of value. So, Yeah. In your, in your area there, like within Wisconsin, like what would be the upper limit on feeding something like a triticale or that? Like I've always kind of read where they kind of want to limit it to say, you know, four or five kilos of dry matter in the ration. Like, is there people that are pushing beyond that? Is there people that are just using some of these crops as re completely replacing alfalfa with it? Or is it always used in a combination with, with an alfalfa silage? So I think it depends on the area of the state where we are, right? A big issue we have right now with alfalfa is winter kill. Mm -hmm. So because of that, people are pursuing more and more options, you know, to avoid having winter kill and then issues with uh, forage production. So some people are able to actually replace a good amount of the alfalfa, maybe entirely, okay? But others just don't do that, right? They add as an extra in addition to corn and alfalfa silage and then formulate the, the, the remaining of the diet based on that, right? I don't think we fully understand what, what the main limit for those are, especially mm -hmm. because we actually treat those as cover crops, right? They are just extra. They are just filling a gap within our forage production uh, timeline, right? I guess the real question is if we learn, you know, the ideal case scenarios for those, how much more could we be feeding of those foreigners? Could we even replace some of the corn, right? Yeah. Uh, um, I think we could, right? I'll tell you, it's quite hard to replace corn because of the starch, but uh, uh, you could buy starch depending on prices. Uh, so, so I think that there are more potential than what we know, right? But until we treat those as actually real forages instead of a cover crop, I think it would be very hard to actually expand that potential because we just gave the example of how variable it is, right? If you are in the yeah. upper end, yep, you can feed a lot of that. But if you're not, then you definitely cannot. So, Well, and I just wonder about risk aversion too. Like if you're kind of concentrating on, say, a triticale or a rye to be your grass forage source and you put all your eggs in that basket, if you do have some kind of crop failure or you have, you know, the weather gets in the way and you just can't get it off in time. Like you might just shoot yourself in the foot where I think producers oh, yeah. are looking at, you know, this is a nice replacement for some alfalfa. We can reduce alfalfa acres. We can, you know, we can kind of shift production from say land that wouldn't really actually do anything in the spring. And we're getting some good inventory built off this. And, you know, like there's a lot of different, I guess there's a, a lot of different approaches on how you can look at how to fit these crops in your system. Oh, absolutely. And I agree 100% with you on the potential issue of relying on those crops and then not being able to harvest. You know, it would be the worst possible scenario. And uh, I think I think when working with forages, uh, we, we, we have to pretty much make decisions on a yearly basis and make sure we understand what the actual inventory is and mm -hmm. move on from there, right? Because if you have extra inventory, then you probably have a small gap to play a little bit with options, right? If you're very tight on inventory, you should probably be very, very careful when making 
huge transitions like this, right? Fully replacing alfalfa, for example, right? It should be a huge concern, right? Uh, for the record, I don't think replacing 100% of the alfalfa is the way to go, right? I just mentioned the case of some producers having issues with winter mm -hmm. field. But even those, they still keep some of the alfalfa, right? Because first, they are used to it. Alfalfa is such great quality, right? Great protein, you know, to actually replace with other crops, right? Especially with grasses. So, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know what it's like in, in Wisconsin, but I guess in Ontario, we started to see some of these things maybe seven, eight, 10 years ago. And it seems like it's being ramped up more and more every year. And I think it's just producers yeah. are getting used to it and they're sharing within themselves. The industry is getting better at uh, how can we utilize some of these these crops in dairy rations and i think we're seeing i think this spring like we've seen more winter forages planted than i have in a lot than i think i ever have and i think part of that too is inventory we came off a really dry year so i think people were looking at oh how do i get some how do i take advantage of some of the spring rain and get some inventory built up because i know i don't know what it's like in wisconsin but this time of year i'm always switching diets like okay well we're just about out of haylage. We got up the corn silage. And then after the hay comes off, then we got to switch around because all of a sudden we're burning through a whole bunch of corn silage and corn is just getting planted. So, you know, we're looking at September, mid-September, early October before we're, we're putting that crop in inventory. So it just gets a little bit wild this time of year, I think. And, yeah. and some of these forage crops just put a nice buffer in place. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I think here was a similar case scenario, right? When I when I moved back to Wisconsin in 2020, uh UW Extension had already some surveys and some work going on, trying to understand more of that, you know, which tells me that probably that began five years before, right? Because that's when people start going through some of the research after they see some of the importance for that. And basically, um what we saw here was two or three years in a row where weather played a major effect on production. So we were also short on forage inventory. Yep. And that's always going to be the driver for crops, right? So in addition to that, there's a lot of work now focused on understanding the potential benefits on soil health, right? Excuse me. And then together with that, I think you have a perfect combination, right? More forages, better mm -hmm. soil. You just go for that. So, yep. Is is there any challenges you see with corn after some of these crops? Like I know there can be. It seems like almost a little bit of a catalyst with corn after rye, but I'm not. I'm not sure if it's because of the previous crop or just the agronomic difficulties of you know making sure like that root mass is so thick like getting getting planted well and a lot of guys like to no-till in after that like is there any challenges that you see with you know the corn after the alfalfa rye or sorry sure. kale rye yeah um that 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 are some people conducting research with that you know to try to better understand what is the impact on that um, I think for a, a lot of time, people never use cover crops and they change to different cover crops and now they focus on forage type of cover crops. Yeah. Uh, so I think it depends on the system that farmers are used to, right? And I think it also depends a lot on what is the proportion of material you are actually leaving in the field uh, before planting corn, right? To make sure 
there is actually that buffer for no-till management. I'm actually very biased by no-till management because that's something that people use a lot in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So so I was always a big fan of this approach. Okay, um, I do think uh, we have to be careful when putting crop on crop all the time, right? But I'm still waiting for more research data to see exactly how that plays, especially for corn silage, right? Because I don't think there is a clear evidence on nutritive value of corn silage changing because of the cover crops, right? Yield, you may have an effect, especially if you delay corn planting. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't think we also have data on that. So. Yeah, and is that yield drag because of delayed planting or because there is an mm-hmm. agronomic interaction that maybe wasn't beneficial to the corn, yeah. I guess? No, for us, I definitely think that a big deal is the uh, time for yeah. corn planting, you know, because uh, we always have this discussion of having a minimum uh, period for corn growth here in the Midwest. Uh, that in the upper Midwest that would kind of fit some of the corn hybrids that we are planning. But you're absolutely right. Probably there is more to it that we don't fully understand. So, Well, I know just here in Ontario, like to maximize our corn grain yields, which we're trying to do with silage as well, is we should have corn planted in the, in the first third of May. Like in the first 10 days of May is typically like your ideal planting times. The weather doesn't always cooperate with that you know, like in an ideal world. And we've seen it over the years, like when we've had some of these record yields, it always comes off of a really nice spring where corn got in, in the first third of May. We have that as well. You know, this year, a lot of people, uh, they were happy that they could plant some of the, at least the researchers, they could plant some of the trials a little bit earlier than usual, you know? Yeah. So, but but yeah, I highly agree with you. The, the 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 window between harvesting the cover crop and planting corn is actually the key decision that I see for using those. So now with Wisconsin being such a dairy focused state, is there a lot of people that are doing, say, soybeans or anything like that after cover crops, or are most people growing corn because like forage is forage is number one there? I think it depends. You know, um, I do think that are some soybeans in this state as well. Uh, but when it goes to dairy farms, I, th- I think corn is the priority, right? Especially uh, especially nowadays where most farms are so limited in acreage that yeah. they, they basically cannot have the luxury of diversifying as much as would be good for them, right? Uh, some may be able to do some of that, but the vast majority of dairies, they, they just have to, you know, keep track of inventory and make sure they fulfill all, all their land with, anything they they need at that time so well i'm glad you mentioned land base because i think that's the next big bottleneck in dairy is that these herds are getting bigger and like the land base isn't growing to necessarily keep up with that and it's just it's economically driven like land is getting crazy expensive so and this is everywhere right you know because it's virtually impossible especially even if you don't increase your herd size right? You are improving your cows genetically. So in 10 years, yeah. they are producing more milk, you know, so you actually need more feed anyway, right? Which uh, yep. something that I think uh, it's very useful now is um, uh, we have a group here at the university as well as in multiple other universities across US and other countries as well uh, that are trying to uh, select cows for a trade called feed safe. Okay, which is basically, if you're familiar with residual feeding take, uh, yeah. they, they actually select cows for that. Uh, for farmers, if you're not familiar with residual feeding take, 
basically we measure individual intakes for our cows and we compare that with the predicted intake they are supposed to have, right? So if they eat less than what is predicted, that means that's a very efficient cow. If they eat more than what's predicted, then she's not efficient. So this has been incorporated recently into some of the hosting uh, selection parameters. So we could be something to help with that, but I don't think we'll fully uh, fix for, for this potential issue of not having enough land because I'm pretty sure cows will continue to improve in new production. So, well, I don't think it. I I think with the increase in production in cows, you know, just eating a bit more feed, we have to be cognizant of the idea that the first twenty five to thirty percent of that feed just goes to keep her alive. Yeah, and Absolutely. as we push production up, you know, these cows are just gonna they're just gonna eat more more mega cows or more dry matter intake, right? Um, I just want to shift gears a little bit and talk about alfalfa because that'll be the next thing that comes after some of these cover crops and uh, alternative forage. So what's uh, in your grand scheme of things? I know we have this discussion all the time with producers is do we look at doing three cuts? Do we look at doing four cuts? Should we cut by the calendar? Should we cut by stage of uh, maturity on this alfalfa? Like what's uh, what's Luis's ideas when it comes to alfalfa? I think each dairy has to put together the approach that fits best uh, their skills, their potential, and their wills, right? Uh, so, so I don't think there is a right answer here, right? Uh, our dairy currently uses four cuts, and uh, it works well for us, okay? Uh, I think the benefit of four cuts is that you get a little bit more digestible in terms of fiber, Right. Okay. Uh, um, but I think it depends on where you are, your flexibility for harvesting pretty much. And then I think you go from there. So my preference is, you know, uh, a routine. So you keep consistent feed every year, right? That you know how to work with, but it's a feed that is high quality and it actually matches what you can do, right? Because we cannot implement some of those four cuttings there is that struggle a little bit with harvesting especially weather right weather plays mm -hmm. a role there as well so it, like it, with the fiber digestibility part that you're talking about like how is the four cut higher digestibility than the third cut is that just a cut timing yeah. within the agronomic system yeah absolutely right because uh to reach four cuttings often you have to uh, having shorter intervals, right, between the cuts. So because of that, you, you, you ended up with a slightly less mature uh, plant, right? And because of that, there's less ligand and the fiber is more digestible, right? Yeah. How you do also we, have uh, a little bit more protein. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too, and I, I know feed cost is always an issue and it has been for the last couple of years here, like we're seeing soybean meal and canola meal and things like that at record highs. So I don't know if elf, growing alfalfa as a protein crop is necessarily economically the right thing to do, but I mean, it's part of the equation though too, right? Absolutely. And I think it depends on the year, the region and everything, right? Because uh, yeah. like just to give you a, a different perspective, I grew up in Brazil where planting alfalfa is very hard. Now more mm -hmm. and more people are trying to and figure out different ways in, in some regions is possible where it's usually when it's uh, in places that's colder. Uh, but then I moved to US and start seeing, you know, the quality of the alfalfa here. 
And it's just so much easier to formulate diets with alfalfa. You know, you just close diets in a way that I couldn't do it at all, feeding primarily corn silage, right? Uh, yeah. So, so I do think it's very helpful. I also like uh, alfalfa bringing a different type of effective fiber uh, to cows. So it allows me to actually play a little bit more with grinding or shopping finer corn silage because uh, I won't want to break more kernels pretty much. So, so then I have a backup plan with the alfalfa. Uh, and also there are years that buying, especially for us here where we have a lot of soybean meal instead of canola meal, you know, it makes much cheaper, right? Depending on the year, mm -hmm. right? Uh, obviously, as you start having more and more options of protein sources, then it may change a little bit that scenario. But I, I'm a big believer that homegrown forages uh, should be the bulk of your diet and you just fulfill the needs with the other uh, options you have, right? As far as profitable, right? Of course, as you reach a point where growing alfalfa, it's risky, then I think it would be a different case scenario. But otherwise, I'm a very big fan of having alfalfa in their diets. Yeah, it's one of those crops that I have a love-hate relationship with it. I hate it sometimes because of yield and quality and other things, but I love it because it, so you know, brings in good protein and it brings in good fiber and there's lots of opportunities for producers to you know spread some summer manure even though that might not be the best practice but it, in reality in 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 the field we have to we have to do they've only got so much storage so you know you have to get yeah. some of that manure and some of that nutrient out on the field absolutely so what uh so back to the the fiber digestibility part like Outside of growing a low lignin alfalfa, is there anything you can do to try and improve the fiber digestibility on it? Because it like alfalfa just seems like it's inherently not the most digestible fiber source. Like if we get it above, say, 50% on the the 30 hour NDF test, like it like I think that's doing pretty good. Yep. I do think there is some variation as well. You know, um obviously there is variation between cuts. Right. Yeah. Uh, I do think that the option of having shorter uh, uh, windows for cuts, right, uh, basically more mature plants help at the expense of yield again. Right. So you yeah. have to be very careful with that and find a sweet spot for each dairy there. Um, other than that, I, I don't have many recommendations on how to improve fiber digestibility of alfalfa. You could you could shop it finer as well, similar to what we discussed for cover crop. My case here, I don't want alfalfa to be too fine because, again, I want to make sure I, I shop corn silage a little bit finer because of the kernel processing. Uh, so, so I try to be careful with that. But again, right, it depends on what you're using as crops, what you can do, and then select with what is best for each dairy. And maybe for some dairies, shopping alfalfa finer is the best approach. Right? I know this time of year, like I just... I like the opportunity in front of producers because we have the ability to kind of set up success for the entire year, minus corn silage time. Right. But, uh, you know, the slate's clean. We can kind of go back and fix all the errors from last year and try and, you know, move forward on some of this stuff. But, uh, with that, I guess let's talk about corn considerations because, you know, corn crops going to go in the ground here too in the next uh, not so distant future. I know 
over the weekend, I seen a little bit of ground being worked and some manure getting spread and some things like that, some new seeding going in. So, you know, spring's upon us. I think when the next weather window opens up, there's going to be a lot of corn going in the ground. So what should we be looking at or thinking about for the upcoming uh, corn crop this year? So corn silage is often dependent on weather, right? So let's hope yeah. we have a good growing season and everything goes perfectly. Uh, I think that similar to what we discussed for some of the other crops, maturity will play a major role on how you harvest corn. Uh, one thing we keep hearing more and more is that because of genetics, corn plants are much healthier now than they used to be before, which I do agree with that, right? We see some very good crops. Um, but at the same time, another thing we are seeing is a, a small disparity between plant maturity and kernel maturity. And I think this is quite important because that changes how we see corn harvesting. So, you know, uh, we always suggest uh, farmers and nutritionists and crop consultants to pay attention not only to whole plant moisture, but also kernel milk line. And probably at a certain point, we need to do kernel moisture too in a combination of the three. Okay. Uh, I'm I think glad you're bringing this up because I think a lot of people got burned last year. And, and, and we are seeing that more and more, you know, it's uh, there are many people making those observations in the field now, which makes me very comfortable in terms of knowing that it's true. Uh, yeah. And I think that are a combination of factors for this. Okay. Um, one of the things is I think some of those plants have a trait called stay green that was initially developed for corn grain, right? You want to make sure that plants stay green as much as it can while the corn grain dries down. So there is no issue with lodging, right? And it's very logical if you think from that perspective. Yeah. But some, some silage hybrids have those to different extents. And I think part of the plant health changes that trait as well. I'm not saying the trait is uh, directly impacting plant health. I think it does. Uh, but I also think the health change a little bit of these dry down ratios. So because of that, you see kernels drying faster and the plant's still very wet. So you will have some very interesting decisions to make because you're going to have to figure out, I cannot put too wet of a plant in a bunker because I'm going to lose a lot of material through seepage, right? Or nutrients through seepage. But I also cannot wait too much because that grain will be as hard as a rock. I will struggle to break it. Okay? And even if I break it, it's naturally less digestible because of the chemistry of the starch. Right? So I do suggest farmers to pay very close attention to both the whole plant as well as the kernel because uh, one or the other only, it may create some problems. So Last year's corn harvest, there was a lot of variability in the fields. Like we had a really odd kind of growing year last year like it, it was kind of a, a droughty year almost but it was kind of wet if I remember correctly it might be a little bit wettish spring so we had a lot of variability in the field so you could watch the corn harvester and if you're watching what's coming out of the spout it's brown then it's green it's brown then it's green it's brown then it's green it's not like a it's not like consistent coming out of there and if you look down the field like the tile run corn like the corn that was on tile was a lot greener and then in between the tiles was a lot more brown. So we had a lot of variability in the field. And I think that was the biggest challenge with producers last year is when do I get started? Because if I walk in this part of the field and grab a couple kernels or stock or cobs and look at them, it's a lot different than it is a hundred yards away in the field. 
trying to get our head wrapped around that and when to pull the trigger to to actually start chopping was a real a real challenge for producers oh yeah this is a very a, a very tough scenario and uh and i think what you what you describe just reinforces the importance of collecting multiple samples from each field right so we actually also understand the field variation right mm-hmm. and uh and i do think uh, that that's quite helpful because at the end of the day, you're going to have to see what the average is, you know, and what it makes more sense from uh, that dairy perspective and go from that. Right. Again, I'm very biased about fiber quality. So I always tend to suggest uh, is likely earlier harvest. Right. Especially now that we know that some of these start to dry down pretty fast. So I'm always a skeptical of making sure we have good crossing as well. So yeah. that's how I would suggest viewing, right? If you if you don't know what to do, obviously you have to be careful with yield because at the end of the day we have to feed cows. Uh, but I, I I will be careful towards wetter corn rather than drier corn. Yeah, and I've had that conversation with some producers this spring because we are dealing with some drier corn, and how fast they can plant it is not how fast they can harvest it. Like they're say they could put their corn in in four or five days and it takes them a week to to get it harvested so there's always there's that variability and then you get field the field variability and so you know that brings up the decision or the conversation do we plant different heat units and or do we heaven forbid park the planter and you know wait five or six days but then we don't know we're not going to get corn silage if that corn seed's not in the ground We're, we're trying to balance two devils right so yeah I think the growing degree days uh, hybrids, varying hybrids, I think is a good option, right? Because you can try to play with that. Uh, probably it's not as simple as as we would like, but uh, it's still, no. I do think is a good option because it gives you more flexibility if you're able to plant some shorter uh, corn in some of the fields. Um, but that you, you obviously would harvest later. But uh, I think that it's a good idea to consider that and see how it goes, right? However, you know, um, I've been lately, I've been very skeptical on how to change things on dairies. And I honestly think that the best approach for farmers, regardless if we are talking about hybrids or uh, agronomics practice, is to maybe start with, you know, one field or maybe a couple uh, stripes in a field to see how things work you know, to make sure that that's good for you, right? So this way you have your view about what those hybrids are because there is so much variation how hybrids respond to management, location, and so on that I do think that we reach a stage where uh, we, we need to have research-based farmers, right? Where they yeah. go there and they do their own testing for a lot of those under their own conditions. And, you know, and they were able to go there, revisit the numbers and say, that's not for me, or that definitely fits what I'm looking for. How we expand, right? So, well, and I think producers have to take data for years over years too, because the weather changes so much, and that's our biggest that's our biggest factor. Like it changes the planting date, it changes how much moisture you're getting, how much sunlight, how many growing degree days, or in Canada we use uh, crop heat units, like. There's so much variability, so you have to kind of build a database over several years to figure out what works. Because I get the question all the time, well, what kind of corn should I grow? I'm like, whatever works for your farm. You should have an idea of what hybrids work on your farm 
and grow those because you know if you say for instance try to grow a bmr and you're on a lighter soil that doesn't like you're just not going to get the moisture in there like you're maybe going to see more of a yield drag than your neighbor who is maybe on a little bit more fertile soil or a little bit more um or some soil that has a little bit better moisture holding capacity right so yeah absolutely and and when you work with hybrids that have actually the yield drag like bmr as you describe you know, you have to be really, really careful, especially because it's not just the yield drag, right? We are talking about something that produces less, but cows eat more. So, mm -hmm. you know, the gap is actually wider than we think. Uh, so we do have to be very, very careful and try some of those. Well, it's one conversation because I get the BMR question all the time and um, everybody really looks at the the yield drag and, and the fiber digestibility and they kind of outweigh those, but what... I don't think it's talked about enough is that the cows eat way more of it. So you're compounding your yield drag. Oh yeah. Like Absolutely. you just need that many more acres. Like No. And I think, uh, so I'm a big fan of BMR, especially the concept. Right. And I think that research is very effective in showing that feeding BMR basically is going to increase intake. And because you are increasing intake, then it, the, the cows will have more energy available for milk production and they will produce, yeah. right? I think research is very, very consistent on that. However, that, that's the case scenario, right? Uh, Dr. Joe Lauer here in the uh, University of Wisconsin Corn Agronomy, uh, he summarized some of the data from the UW hybrid trials. And what they saw is across, I think was about 15 years, is that consistently, BMR will have lower yields, right? This 10, 15% mm -hmm. yield drags that we discussed. In addition to that, BMR has a little bit less starch, right? So you are also trading some of the starch uh, for this greater fiber digestibility. The fiber digestibility will be about 10 percentage units greater, right? Yeah, and, so that, and it, like I've seen that on samples too. Like this year, I think corn in my neck of the world is we're seeing conventional hybrids in at that mid to low 60s on the NDF 30 and BMR is still 10 points higher than it. And I th I would think like the digestibility numbers are a bit on the high side just because we were a bit droughty last year. Yeah. And I don't think that's always the norm, but that but you still see that 10 point spread on BMR versus conventional. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and you know, um, I honestly think, and, and this is just my my opinion. Uh, I, I think that the best approach for hybrids like BMR is, is not to actually have the entire herd fed this type of hybrid. Uh, I think BMR fits very well in herds that have the potential to feed uh, fresh cows and then early and peak lactation, high producing cows with those. And then you have another hybrid, you know, that actually has very good yield, you know, and reasonable quality. I'm not I would never say that you should plant something of low quality just to get the yield. So good yeah. yield and reasonable quality, right? That you can actually feed the other cows, right? And, and if you think about it, I think it makes a lot of sense because you are feeding the cows that can benefit the most, uh, the more digestible hybrid, right? And you are diluting the diets for the other cows. And there is one benefit that we often don't see or talk about, which is milk persistency, right? Um, mm -hmm. The Cornell University run a study, and, and this was about 10 years ago, and uh, basically they fed cows prepartum, 
And the first, I think the first three weeks uh, of uh, lactation with BMR versus a conventional hybrid. And then after that, they transition to only the conventional hybrid to their normal diet, right? The cows that produce more milk because of the greater intake of BMR early on, they kept that persistency, right? So they were producing more milk several weeks after they stopped consuming that. So there is a benefit in doing that and making sure you actually don't have don't have all the yield drag that you would have combined with those greater intakes, right? Um, to help farmers, you know, and nutritionists, uh, our agronomy team actually has a, what we call a BMR calculator, which is a spreadsheet, which is free of charge. You just have to get that through UW extension. And uh, basically you can put all your costs, you know, and play with some of those numbers and see, okay, so what is the benefit of feeding BMR and associated the yield issues as well, uh, as well as costs of BMR and see if it's worth for you. And I do think it's a very nice exercise to do before uh, try, even trying a couple of fields with that because it gives you a very good perspective on that, so. No, I think the biggest challenge here on Ontario for BMR is, like outside of yield drag is being able to feed it to the right groups because a lot of times like to manage multiple bunker faces open or multiple silos open, we have to weigh the pros and the cons. Like if we're not feeding through that feed fast enough, then it's going to start to heat. So we're kind of, we're losing on the other end when, and we're trying to gain. So it's kind of a, it's one of those double-edged swords, right? But uh, I think in a perfect world, we could all have, you know, be feeding different, hybrids like a conventional and a bmr like you said because i think there's real benefit like there's benefit to it i think the research will tell you that time in and time out there's always a a milk a milk response to it i was it's funny i was talking to a producer we were on a a tour in wisconsin actually and and we asked the question like do you grow bmr he goes yep he goes every time we grow bmr or feed bmr we get two pounds two to three pounds more milk and I was like, well, why don't you grow it all? He goes, well, because we got 4,000 mouths to feed. And I think that's the that's the truth. Like it's it works, but at the end of the day, you got a lot of other animals on that farm to feed too, right? So absolutely. And and, and I like your consideration about multiple bunkers and management because it's definitely true, right? And that and this is actually one of the reasons people don't want to do that, right? Because it's not as simple as we would like it was to manage bunkers and make sure everything is going great, right? With silage. Um and there are other things as well that uh, would be harder with BMR. Some people think that you have to apply more fungicide, you know. Um, so, so there are a lot of considerations to make when using specialty hybrids uh, like BMR, for example. Uh, so I do think uh, it's a good exercise to discuss and implement only if it's a dairy that actually can do that, right? I, I don't think we, we can implement uh, everything to every dairy. Right, because not no. everybody can 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 copy with all those issues. So, uh, you brought up an interesting point about uh, fungicide. What are your thoughts on it? I I know mine have changed, but I want to hear yours. I, I think there is variable data, right? Um, I'm not an agronomist, so my knowledge on that is pretty limited. But what I see is that people sometimes use fungicide and even expect greater fiber digestibility. Uh, if that's what you want to use it for, I'm against. Okay, I think you use that if you have to use that yeah. for the right reasons, right? But then it's a completely different case scenario, right? So said that, you know, um, 
I don't know if every dairy would be required to use more fungicide for BMR, but if they do, you have to definitely consider that extra management labor and costs. So, yeah, I know uh, I'm a big fan of it now. So in Ontario here, we've been getting some tar spot over the last two to three years. And I don't know if you run into that in Wisconsin or not, but a little bit. I, uh, I've seen what it can do to corn mid season, like mid August and just decimate it. And that corn should have been growing, been alive and healthy for at least another three to four weeks before it started the dry down process. So I'm just thinking like to keep that plant healthier, we need to do everything that the producer has available in their toolbox to make sure that, you know, that corn, makes it to the mid September and packs as much starch away and gets a good, good yield, uh, for winter feed. Like it's a lot easier to stare at feed than it is to look for feed. So <laughs> oh, yeah. absolutely. And under those conditions, you know, that, then it completely changes the answer, right? It, it, yeah. It's the category of, if you have to just use it. Right. Uh, and yeah. I agree with you. Tar sport is a uh, tar spot. is a nightmare because yeah. it, it just dried down very fast. And and actually, if you realize it's there, you should probably just You're probably harvest. too late. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. You, you should just go yeah. and harvest, you know? Oh, I'm going to lose kernel. It's not going to be there anyway. Because your, so, your plant's going to die yeah. and you're going to lose fiber digestibility, right? So Exactly. So if you're in, you know, you just go for it and, and, and pray for the best. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, just to to kind of wrap things up here, Louise, like, is there any, say, if you had to look into your crystal ball with this year's forage crop, what are, say, two or three things that you would make sure that producers focus on to make sure that it's a success? A success? Well, I, I think that, you know, uh, regardless of the year, right, I think that producers have to run those exercises to figure out what is the best yield versus quality options for them, you know, and copy with that. Uh, to me, this is the number one uh, harvesting decision that everybody has to make. You know, there is no right answer here. And every dairy should have a different answer because of land, forage, uh, practice, and so on. So figure out what's best for you. Okay, you make sure you work with a team of nutritionists, crop, crop consultants, so you get different opinions, different views, and you match what is actually best for you, the farmer, right? Uh, in addition to that, uh, if you're working with a lot of corn, processing is key, right? More and more, uh, we, we are, are worried about several other things associated with corn silage production, including fiber digestibility. And please don't get me wrong, this is very, very important. However, Breaking kernels should be your number one priority. If they are not broken, you know, I always joke that they become bird feed, right? They will live in the mm -hmm. manure. The cow is not going to use it at all, right? So that would be my second consideration, right? And the third consideration, we actually didn't discuss a lot of that today, uh, but it's related to silage fermentation, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, regardless of the crop you use, you need to do a good job with packing, sealing, okay? making sure there are no holes throughout the period where you're feeding that bunker, a good job feeding enough material that we discussed briefly uh, earlier. And so one of my suggestions is 
pay close attention to how you do all of that and consider using a microbial inoculum, okay? I do think there are a lot of options available, okay? So use a research proven option, okay? And more important than that, not every inoculant fits every crop. So think about which inoculant would be best for your conditions as well. Because often we hear people, oh, I want to use that inoculant. Well, but you don't need that, right? Your crop actually mm -hmm. styles quite well, right? You just need a may maybe something that helps with aerobic stability or vice versa, right? Yeah. So 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 those are the three things I would suggest paying attention to. It's actually pretty much the three things I always suggest people. To <laughs> I don't think it, it changes from year to year. You know, I think those are key no. management practice that regardless of what you do, is going to take you a long way. Yeah. I think if you focus on those, say three things, then the rest kind of falls into place. Like you're going to have your other challenges outside of that, that might try and influence that. But if you can kind of stick to your, stick to your guns and make sure that, you know, those three things get taken care of, uh, the rest seems to come pretty easily. So I wish, uh, I wish I had another hour to talk to you today. Cause I think that getting into the, uh, the whole silage inoculant and packing and, and the best management practices for that is incredibly important, more important than I think anything else that we're doing on the farm when we're making feed. Like, I think if you can get enough density and, or porosity, get the porosity right and get it covered and get it inoculated and get it fed out, right? Like it's the key to success to feeding high forage diets, right? So. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Ferreretto, I uh, truly appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I think we're going to have to do it again and talk about, uh, talk about what we just did with the silage stuff, because yeah, I feel like I could talk to you for another hour for sure. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be happy to. And thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmer's Digest is brought to you by the dairy team at Wallenstein Feed and Supply Limited. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Schoonerwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.